The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, George Goncalvez. Uh, he's got a phenomenal amount of research that he puts out on Twitter and through his day job. So I encourage everybody here to follow George. George, for those who are not familiar with your background, talk about who you are, how you get involved in the bond market, and what are you doing now? Sure. And and before I get started, Mike, you know, thanks for having me on. Um, been following your work also in various platforms. You've been a leader you know, in, in many different levels. I mean, especially marrying the quant with, with, with macro. So kudos to you and everything you've done so far. So I'm a George Concalvis, uh, known on, on Twitter as at Bond Strategist. Been in the industry for over, you know, going on now 25 years. Uh, primarily fixed income, currently working at a bank called MUFG Securities, where I focus on U.S. macro strategy and I, I run the effort there. Uh, I've been doing this, you know, again, like over 20 plus years and primarily fixed income. Uh, you know, fixed income has you know, take on a greater importance, especially considering the sort of the price action that we've seen this year. But by and large, the bond market has been you know, a great signal and a good kind of macro indicator to be tracking for those that don't really you know, participate in the bond market. I primarily focus on institutional side. You know, looking forward to having a macro conversation with you, Mike, and everybody else. But just you know, kind of disclaimer, you know, everything I say in here is just you know, macro backdrop. It's not, it doesn't constitute a recommendation. Just looking to have a conversation. Well, you can tell that the fact that George uh, mentioned that disclosure tells you that he's in the business <laughs> like I am. So I'm glad that this George did that. Okay, so um, I appreciate you saying that point about trying to combine quant uh, with macro. Because I, I would argue that while a lot of people think the two are one and the same, they can be very different because macro is about the environment. Quant you know, strategies, I would argue, are more about the, the path with which the environment plays out. I want you to talk about how do you think about executing an asset allocation process when you're in an environment that really seems largely unprecedented. I know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how this may, may or may not compare to other cycles, but uh, I'm sure a lot of the work that you've done, like the work that I've done, would suggest this is really something we really haven't seen before. So when you think about being a strategist, when you're in a new kind of cycle, a new kind of environment where you can't necessarily look to history, how do you think about positioning? Yeah, so look, I think at a minimum, while you're going into any sort of regime change, it's good to know where you're coming from. And, and also knowing, you know, what is the kind of prevailing narrative, but also you know, where positioning is too. So, I mean, I, I do think positioning and flows plays a great, you know, role in the sort of work that strategists do. Um, 
as well as just understanding, you know, investor sentiment more broadly and like how they're thinking about it. And then, you know, if there's the two match, the positioning should show for what the view is at that time. So, you know, like knowing what we're going into, um, or at least if you feel like there's an inflection point coming and understanding like the backdrop of positioning helps to at least set the parameters for how extreme moves could be if the if the story changes. And so that's like really important to me and has been for really for at least 15 to 20 years of, of my career. Uh, understanding positioning and flows uh, is a big part of it. But I think just on the more kind of model base, we all have our go-to indicators and we look at you know, how things are evolving through a cycle. And like, you know, this cycle specifically, what you know, I've been wrestling with, I think, you know, some people are finally coming around to the idea is that we never really got out of the last cycle. And so like really the COVID stimulus and the Fed easing, you know, elongated the other business cycle. Or if not that, then some sort of version, again, we, this is us going back to, to history, but some sort of version of the, the, of the 1980s where you had, you know, back-to-back recessions. People were not expecting that, but it did happen. And so like what really I think caught people off guard this year as everyone kind of extrapolated, which is something I tried not to do. I tried to really think about, you know, how, you know, how the data is evolving in you know, real time and not just assume that you have to get some sort of growth path that equals inflation and like, you know, potential growth and things like that. You got to, you know, you have to really go back and look at, you know, prior periods, you know, look for analogs and you kind of throw it all into a blender and you come up with a view. Okay. You, you use the term prevailing narrative and narrative always follows price, right? Price moves and then the story, the catalyst, the reason is only concocted after price has moved. So when you think about those inflection points in a cycle, what are some of the things that might give you a sense that things might be changing? I'll tell you from my perspective, I do believe that there is something to the idea that when everybody believes they know what tomorrow brings, the payout is probably higher on betting against the crowd. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you necessarily, the crowd's going to be wrong about the future, but rather that if it's so convincing of a narrative around the future, that that's probably when you get into trouble. But but talk about for yourself subjectively, objectively, how do you determine when it cycles at the inflection point? I think you can bring up good points. When, when it becomes more commonplace, it's you know largely priced in or try to you know, use some sort of probability framework of... You know, if there's different states of being, of being long, being flat, being short, you know, understanding how much something has moved doesn't necessarily mean that it can't move further. And I, and I, I agree with you on that point. And it's okay sometimes to go with the crowd. But if the um, macro signals are getting very volatile or just not you know, trending with the price and they start to kind of diverge, if you start to get, you know, all these kind of mixed signals, but yet you know, the, the story is still pretty firmly in one camp, the risk is something comes out of left field that, you know, kind of knocks out that prevailing view. Uh, I mean, that, that, you know, again, like some people are, are super enamored by energy and what's going on there. And that, you know, probably has legs for a lot of more structural fundamental reasons. But the question then becomes how much of it is in the price. And then like, you know, like the same thing, like what happened with gold. And, you know, I think what we're seeing in real rates, I mean, for the better part coming out of COVID, um, you know, re- real rates being super negative and the idea that rates would never move again. Like that set up a pretty big trap, which ended up with a, you know large losses in the bond market. So, I feel like you know these things linger until they snap for a variety of reasons. You know, without going all into the details, but I think that we're potentially at one here. I mean, considering how the bond market's been behaving lately, especially the last week. But you know, we'll see. All right, so, so let's tease it out, and, and maybe kind of a good summary of that point is is this 
line I've used before, which is that, you know, the crowd is, is typically right on average, but wrong at the extremes. And I would argue that the extremes are actually much more easily identifiable than before because of social media, because of sentiment, and because of what I would argue is overconfidence, right, about how the future plays out. You saw that with the cryptocurrency advance and then the crash. You saw that with the bond market crash. Now, let's talk about this this line you used that people got caught off guard by this, because a lot of people argue that this bond market sell-off, this yield spike was expected. I always argue that that's easy to say with hindsight, because while, yes, you've had negative real yields for a long time, the timing of, of when it actually matters is the black swan. It's the exact mile marker you crash that makes it the black swan, not the rain that favors it. Talk about how you view this this duration primarily, duration-based sell-off that we had starting earlier in the year, and then how that might be morphing into credit risk, which could conceivably pause or cause a slowdown in, in uh, Fed hawkishness here. Yeah. And so, and like, the one has to kind of take a step back and realize there's, you know, large capital pools that have to be allocated to the bond market. And so that, that's something that, you know, you could try to hedge around positioning, but just speaking broadly, you know, not everyone could be selling, not everyone could be buying, right? So everything, all, a price gets set at the margin, right? And so when price is set at the margin, it takes you know, a pretty big shift in where we're heading to. And that took, you know, that really started towards the end of last year, you know, and then the beginning of this year with, you know, the increase, you know, Fed, Fed hawkishness. And then, you know, what's now starting to become more of a global cacophony of um, central banks also globally starting to kind of join in on this tightening, which is unusual. Uh, that they all kind of go in the same same direction. Even though inflation is a clear and present danger today, is it going to be always that case over the next six months? And the Fed has a pretty large lead time now in other central banks. But I digress. I mean, like literally, this was a duration shock that um, need, I guess in many ways had to happen because the rate channel and the low rate narrative was fueling other narratives. Like you have to chase other assets for yield. Uh, and so this is, you know, was and is the fastest way for the Fed to rein in housing to kind of, you know, take away some of the aggregate demand that's out there by destroying wealth effect through, you know, the 60-40 bond portfolio doesn't work in that environment. Like literally the perfect storm happened in Q1 and it's lingered into Q2 in the bond market. And now, you know, like like you said, like, you know, people start to make this, like, they start to assume that this is now the new narrative that we're going to be in this structural bond market, uh, bear market. You know, for me, like, the what I've been saying and, and writing about is if you have, you know, two quarters of, you know, the rate move beyond the prior highs, which were, you know, marked in 2018, which so far we've been this week flirting with the 10-year is what I focus on. You know, that being above 325, I mean, if that stays like that all throughout the summer and into the fall, then we can maybe argue that the bomb bull run is completely over, or this was just a big adjustment that had to take place because the bond market would be the the pin that pricks all the bubbles and then eventually becomes a you know an asset class that's that's worthy investing in. I think that's the real question that we're in right now. I think it's you know part of what you put out in the kind of teaser uh, for the the, the Twitter uh, discussion. So I feel like that's it's you know we're in that process of now debating that. Uh, and you know if it truly does end up being the the highs and we cannot surpass these levels and the curves start to because the Fed goes too far or something like that, then you know long term fixed income starts to become a you know a viable asset class. But it also exposes the weakness in credit, and that's really where it becomes much more 
a broader macro story for the, the economy because then, you know, the weaker credits out there that can't afford to refinance or, you know, the, the, those that are on floating rate risk that, you know, as their loans reset higher, they're going to have to really start to make uh, decisions and cut back on either hiring or business opportunities. And that's how the economy slows, maybe into a recession. You said the, the, you know, the question is, you know, has the Fed gone too far? And you often hear that line that, you know, this is going to break. And, and when it breaks, it's because the Fed has gone too far. But I would argue it's not a question of the Fed going too far. It's, it's about the market going too far. So I know it's not exactly a, a clean comparison, but I put that tweet out a little bit earlier that, you know, when you look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, it's around $8.9 trillion, And you look at how much market cap has been lost in equities. And then, of course, with this sell-off in bonds, uh, bespoke at a great chart on that, that $14 trillion plus has been lost in yes. this period. So everyone's talking about the Fed and all of these dollars being printed. And this is me more talking about the demand pull inflation side of things. But you've had severe, severe wealth devastation. I don't think people really fully appreciate how large these numbers have already become. You, listen, you, you the nail on the head there. I mean, I think we're in the suspended animation point right now where last week, I think really was one of the last kind of nails to kind of remind or really make it clear. But as you know, if we don't see a bounce back over the summer, then you know, people will start looking up and they realize there's been a lot of wealth destruction and, uh, and that will end up impacting demand in a very significant way. I mean, we're already, the economy is already decelerating as it is with this sort of shock. And if there's any further moves lower in, in, in market valuations, then, you know, it's almost, you know, I have a very high probability of recession, 50%, you know, and I can be easily convinced higher. I think the recession, you know, at least will get to the heart of the matter, which is how to put inflation back into the genie bottle. If, you know, there's like this idea that, you know, inflation somehow is going to take off. And, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to certain parts of that. However, you know, what people fail to realize is that, you know, look, we're in, Every environment is different, and we're still in a world that's highly competitive, and we're a world that's you know easily could be where wages or labor could be replaced by automation. Uh, I, I mean, I think people have to realize that you know perhaps this two-year window that we went through was just a, a big anomaly for so many different reasons. To expect permanent wage growth on the pace that we've seen so far, when eventually uh, you know the corporate sector will start to innovate away from from labor. I think labor has to be careful, and like, and you end up, you might end up with a situation where the great resignation will be like, like the great head fake because those that either try to cash out because they thought their portfolios were at the highs and also quit their jobs. I mean, like, you could get into a situation where it's going to force you know labor to come back in at uncompetitive levels, and that ends up being like some deflation or disinflation on the back half of this, like I don't know, twenty three, twenty four. And I think people are not looking at it. This is the whole myopic problem of. Like the narrative is inflation now. And so everyone's like, oh, it's going to persist. And then it has persisted and I get it. And we're, we're dealing with all these one-off factors that are driving it. But the, the structural forces that have been in play for the last 30, 40 years, I, you know, the, the, yes, globalization probably won't be as, as, as prevalent as, as it was before, but it's not going to go to zero. Meanwhile, you have technology and all this automation. I mean, the, you know, the labor force has to be careful here. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. 
visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. No, you know, I was, I was smiling as you were saying that because I've, I've joked about that in the in the midst of the, the heavy declines. I've put out these screenshots showing cryptocurrencies, and I would sarcastically say, "Well, I guess that's one way to solve the labor shortage, right?" Which is exactly to your point that you go from this great resignation to, you know, maybe the the great head fake with hindsight. But the other thing is also it's remarkable to me how how there's a degree of cognitive dissonance Bingo. around this inflation narrative because. Everyone, I think, now is on board with the idea that housing is going to decelerate meaningfully because of this mortgage rate shock, right? And, and you know, uh, home values to income ratios and affordability and all this stuff. And yet, there's still, despite that belief that housing is going to decelerate, there's still a belief that inflation persists. But housing, owner's equivalent rent, is a major component to inflation. So how can you argue that you maintain high inflation if housing itself is going to potentially be a drag maybe for for years to come, I don't, I, to me, it just doesn't seem to make much sense. I don't know how you how you think. About yeah, that. I, this is the this is the issue that we're seeing. Like, look, look, the you mentioned the fourteen trillion, I guess, from, from bespoke, and I think you know we've calculated similar numbers. The the, the up down swing in market cap of the S and P, just using that as the main barometer, out of out of the COVID shock, I mean, was about twelve or plus trillion on the on the on the top side. So now it's basically swung to the other side. But people are still up from the COVID low, right? So the the thing, you know, like that what drives me kind of like crazy is that like this this is unevenness that is like like creating these weird echoes through the system. And so it looks like the optics basically it's, it's messing with all the optics of like, you know, is it sustainable inflation? At some point, you know, you you burn off the rental increases because there was a lot of you know the moratoriums and the inability for like you know for landlords to actually push up prices. Like once you get through all of these like one-off factors that are just kind of operating not in lockstep, they're all just all over the place. Then you end up with a much cleaner picture. And this is you know quite frankly also been messing with the Fed too because they don't they, you know their models are not meant for this sort of macro vol. And they're having a hard time calibrating, and like you know, that's, that's being really nice to them. Um, and so, like, I feel like <laughs> basically, you know, who knows when we're going to get a, a, a good, honest look at the economy? Maybe it's the middle of twenty three, and probably it could be in you know coming from will be either a recession has happened already, or we're kind of we're meandering through close to zero growth. I mean, like Q1 had very little, well, had negative growth and everyone tried to discount that away. Meanwhile, the inventory problem is getting much bigger as we speak. And so like Q2, we'll see if it's able to pop up a, a positive number. But then you have Q3. So like if we're just meandering through growth and not really seeing a, a proper recession definition, but it could be a recession, then 22 is a year that you write off and you end up with 23 starting off on a very weak footing I just don't see how people can say like, you know, inflation is sustainable because then all these others lagging indicators should then kind of mean revert. No, and I think that's a very important point and relates a little bit now to the transition from this duration sell off to, you know, maybe a cycle where there's credit risk, you know, to come, right? The dilemma here, which relates to that bespoke piece, is that it's not just that stocks and bonds have correlated on the downside. It's in particular that stocks and treasuries have correlated on the downside, that you don't get that that convexity where yields drop on the long duration side because equity volatility is rising and risks risks are increasing. Now, that's the duration sell-off, right? And that's why when you look at a lot of these AAA bond ETFs that have treasuries, they've actually fared in many ways a lot worse than high-yield junk debt funds. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, George, that 
you are starting to see the end of the duration so often, maybe some more uh, differentiation in terms of credit quality. How important is that to the way the cycle plays out? And how do you think about default risk when you have these spiking rates? Yeah, so like, again, like if we go back to like this idea that what kind of business cycle did you really uh, inherit? I mean, if this is a short-lived three-year cycle, like this is similar to what we saw coming out of like, you know, World War II or the Korean War or any sort of pent-up demand. So you have that channel and then you have just the 81 and 84 comparison of like fighting inflation and then you kind of fall back into recession. Then you go try to grow and you fall back into recession. And you have a much more sophisticated and much more leveraged system that has benefited from the low rates for such a long time period. And also during the COVID uh, period as well, that led to even a, lar- you know, a larger increase in leverage. It, it, it does make the, if you know, we're moving from this duration shock, which I think we're kind of like, we're, we're, we're exploring the, the idea that we're pretty much, there's only so much we can go. Because if we go even further, then the, hard, the more it goes, the harder the fall is going to be on the other side. So and maybe enough of a kind of a catalyst has been formed and pushed through the rate channel that now the other parts of fixed income, like credit, will start to kind of get pressure. I mean, we've had a decent widening of spreads, but mostly very orderly. I mean, most markets have been very orderly. So there's there has what's lacked so far is that cathartic move, which gives you that convexity that would then, in theory, if you know, if, if treasuries especially uh, still have their hedge capability or like that, they're, they should. You know, trade that way if there is a more proper risk off, not just this repricing that we've been going through. Then, if we go from the duration risk to the credit risk side, then you could easily have a situation where maybe yields are not rising that much on credit, but treasuries are outperforming. And then you get that big spread widening that happens typically at the end of the these cycles. Like that, that's the that would at least highlight that we've gotten closer to the end of what we're purging. We haven't had that yet. So some people say, oh, it'll never happen because there's so much money in the system. I challenge that. Um, and that, you know, this has got to be a longer business cycle. I challenge that. And the Fed has a, a binding constraint. And I think what people are still, because of what happened coming out of COVID and how much support was given by both the fiscal and the Fed, people think that somehow, you know, there's going to be a bailout that's going to happen. And I think what what scares me the most is that when the if we do get a more kind of cathartic cleansing, it's going to go back to fundamentals. Like the central banks cannot just then turn on the dime and go back to easing and doing QE. And so that's going to really scare people. Is that they're going to be like, well, there's no one really, no one really here is going to, you know, there's no one here to help you, um, you know, make it stop, you know, from going down. So I think like that part hasn't set in yet for the larger investor base. Um, uh, and I think that would be like would then lead to you know, credits that are on the more weaker side, you know, starting to see defaults pick up and then line up with the business cycle decelerating into 23. And maybe we're already decelerating as we discussed before. And then they kind of get this purge. And if that actually happens, like to be honest, I think that's like, I still call that ripping the Band-Aid off, which is you rather just take your lumps quick and fast and then get to a better place on the other side versus dragging this thing out. I think the Fed kind of is now in that camp too. They're just going to keep you know, hiking until something breaks um, and inverts the curve. And so I feel like that's still ahead of us. And we're that we just finished the end of the beginning and now we're in the middle of the storm. And, um, and you know, if this plays out as it should, and now it's just playing out faster than in other cycles, so it won't take two years. I mean, by the fall and early Q1 of next year, we should know if this recession risk slash last kind of 
move lower in risk assets, if that really happens to be what takes place, then we should find out pretty quick. And so I feel like all this is coming to us quick and it's gonna and we're gonna we're gonna see it and see proof positive of it. And then it'll be a, a better environment for 23, 24, like the back half of 23, 24, 25. But that's me, that's me being as optimistic as I can get. There's always, of course, you know, accidents that we can't foresee happening and we'll, you know, we'll take that as, as they come. On the widening of credit spreads point, I mean, that's been perplexing for a lot of people, I think, as this sell-off took place. I would argue that the reason spreads have been tighter than what one would otherwise expect is actually because of commodities, right? Because a lot of junk debt issuances are in the heavily levered uh, you know, natural resource drilling type of space. So to the extent that commodity prices have been elevated, reducing default risk that, you know, maybe puts sort of a, a little bit of a, a ceiling around contagion across, you know, particular credit quality. But I'm curious if you've seen anything else that would suggest that that's the case, or if there's other reasons for why spreads have stayed kind of tight. You almost had this broad-based parallel shift, right, in pretty much all yields. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, again, the, the again, there's been positives, at least you know, corporate America was smart to take advantage and refinance as much as possible during the COVID, you know, lows and rates. And uh, a lot of them did term out. So the, the, what's called like a maturity wall, right? As you know, it's not as, as, uh, as onerous as in the past. And so like, there's not a lot of uh, refinance risk that has, that ha- will happen for at least some of the stronger credits, even into the high yield space as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, Less concerned about the public markets, although I do think that you know there's more spread widening to come, uh, and I haven't seen we haven't seen the wides yet. I'm just more concerned about like you know private credit, uh, private equity, things that are like less mark to market, and just you know just overall in general, there's been a lot of just leverage um, provided by you know non bank entities. I mean, the Fed kind of mentioned that in one of their papers recently, so they're watching it. I mean, and, and, and this is why I feel like. Ripping the band-aid going faster is better than just you know dragging out a, a longer recession. I, I brought up this point before in the last couple of days, George, that, and I've become increasingly bullish on everything, at least for trade in stocks and bonds. I think you're going to have a potentially a, a summer melt-up situation, not only because sentiment is so bombed out, but because I would argue that now we're at risk of positive surprises, right? And I've laid out several potential positive surprises, which in some way, shape, or form, all relate to, you know, falling inflation or at least decelerating inflation. One, that Biden needs to win. Maybe he negotiates something with OPEC and somehow there's a lot more oil that comes in. That relieves some of the pressure. Two, that you could have a situation where the Fed, and I want to talk about this a little bit more, the Fed says, instead of doing a set number of QT per month, we're going to make it variable, right? Because they don't want to sell into a disorderly bond market. And and then, you know, there are a couple of other sort of reasons I've been laying out as to why you could have a, a pretty big move. But at the end of the day, it's really ultimately about inflation. I, w- I want you to talk about the possibility here of the Fed changing the way that it does uh, quantitative tightening, because we're pretty much just at the start. And you've already had a pretty severe bond market sell-off. It doesn't seem smart to me that they'd want to uh, cause a dislocation further by adding a whole bunch of new supply when there already is questions around demand. Yeah, look, I mean, like you said, like a QT just started. And, and, and again, this is the whole thing about markets that are fast and pricing in what is the known risks, right? And so we knew that QT was coming and a lot of that was largely priced in in Q1, even though it's starting in June, for, you know, started this month. Um, I, look, I think that they're not apt yet to change the QT. And, you know, my personal view, and I, and I could relate to what you're saying that there could be a tradable bounce and that's possible. And I, 
you know, like we saw it towards the end of May. I just don't know how long it's going to last, but well, let's see what happens. I mean, there's, if you get the bigger macro changes that you alluded to, especially on oil and getting some relief on, on energy prices, that could be something that would be a tradable balance. I just, I'm still nervous around, you know, the longevity of the, you know, the Russian-Ukraine crisis and just that there's still a lot of uh, supply offline and it's going to be hard to see how OPEC will fully fully backfill that. So I don't think we've seen the highs yet in energy prices, but yeah, if you get like a short-term reprieve, that's possible. Uh, but then it could set up an even more uh, tricky winter when you know there's going to be a need to basically somehow fuel Europe and they're not going to be able to get it from Russia. So I, I'm not sure if I'm completely on board or like it would be sustainable, but a tradable balance is possible. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm with you, by the way, because I think yeah. I, you know, my, 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 I think it's the way you screw the crowd, so to speak, right, is you have everything rally at once and then at some point you get divergence risk assets again resume their drop. But maybe at that point, treasury yields on the long actually drop, you know, consistent with more classic kind of risk-off behavior. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. That's right. Yeah, and that's possible too. Yeah, and like I think, so if you if you're the Fed, right? I mean, you have the July meeting coming up. I mean, you have the the idea of you know there's there, there's I mean I've written about it and I've been pretty vocal about it. It almost sounded like you know Chair Powell was being apologetic for raising seventy five basis points. I mean, when you're trying to fight inflation, if that's truly what they're trying to do, I mean, you have to do it with conviction and and, and really come across as that you're going to do whatever it takes to put it you know you know to kind of really. Uh, Stop this from being uh, you know, more you know, embedded in changing inflation expectations because yeah, there's a weird thing going on between the bond market's view of um, inflation expectations versus the consumer sentiment. And though even if us bond folks really think we got the right move, and you still have to, the Fed still has to respect the consumer because you know, given the shock that we just went through. If there, you know, if the you know the psyche really has changed in a way where the consumers like, well, inflation cannot really ever be, uh, you know, curtailed or, or, or corralled by Fed policy, then their credibility really is on on the on the line. So, I mean, that's the critical linchpin that I call it for for Fed policy. It's all about inflation expectations. So we're getting like a divergence between market based inflation expectations and consumer based. So they have to kind of like write that course, and it should be from consumers. Realizing the Fed means business, the bond market's right. Eventually, we're going to go back to a two and a half percent or so inflation, and that's like the steady state over the next five, ten years. And this again was just an anomaly because of all the you know the things that happened in between. So, like then, if you think about like the energy part of that, and we're you know we're at the point you know where we're peak driving season between you know know, Memorial Day and Labor Day, uh, and it probably spills into August. So like the July, you know, in July, we'll get the June CPI. There's still a risk for upside on June CPI, at least for headline. If the core were to also kind of go in the same direction, it's hard for them not to deliver 75 basis points. And then it'll be weird for them to change the QT real time. But what could happen is, you know, at the Jackson Hole in August, where they can start to like, you know, have a, a meeting of the minds around like what 
future policy may look like. But even then, that's too far ahead that I'm not sure if that would last, like the tradable balance would last long enough till that point. And then we'll get back into the fourth quarter thinking about, hey, you know, corporates are starting to now really guide lower on earnings because of the strong dollar, because just global growth is going to be weaker. This energy thing is a drag and it's a tax on everybody. And then I think like you get real proof positive that this is decelerating hard into the fourth quarter. And then the Fed might at some point have to blink. And I think that's what we're all trying. We're all trying to figure out when does the Fed blink? You know, when, you know, we can't figure out when this war is going to be over. Uh, we don't know if China's going to come back online full, at full speed. And the U.S. is really the only you know, game in town, but it's also decelerating as well. So, you know, this, these are really big, you know, juggernauts to kind of navigate. And so if it doesn't turn uh, anytime soon, then all we'll see is a tradable balance and it won't be sustainable. I'm with you on that. Um, and I always make it a point also that the question is not about what the narrative is, but how much has been priced in and if that pricing in is an over or under reaction to the continuation of that narrative. And you mentioned the consumer. It's amazing to me how this has played out in the sense that if you look at some of these internal dynamics, you look at consumer discretionary relative to the S&P, you're back at 2003 levels, meaning if you were bullish on the consumer uh, relative to broader equities when QE3 was underway, you pretty much went round trip. If you look at small caps relative to large caps, you're back at 2002 levels, meaning that if in 2002 your bet was with the tech bubble collapsing, that small caps are the only place to allocate, you've gone round trip, meaning you have the same performance as the S&P. So you've got a lot of really interesting dynamics happening internally, I would argue, that would suggest that there's been a severe amount of repricing, uh, more than headline averages would suggest. Now, there is this saying, George, and, and I know you've come across this, I'm sure, that the bond market is the smartest student in the class. Right? The bond market's smarter than the stock market. I wonder if they're both being stupid here, right? And I want you to talk about that because it's, because they're both acting the same, right? As we've seen with this drawdown, but it just, it just seems to me that there's so much negativity beneath the surface for both bonds and stocks that, um, again, all these narratives could be right about recession and, and inflation, but how much is overreacted on price versus underreacted? So like your point about dispersion and like the fact that we've now seen you know, the internals you know, there's a lot of pain out there and things that are starting to break down. So that's, again, that's why I feel like we're, we've moved more towards the middle of whatever cycle that we're going through. Um, it's not definitely not the beginning. I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of damage has been done. And it's also true that, you know, like we've been discussing all along that, you know, what really stands out has been the the inability for bonds to to, to serve as a hedge throughout this sort of movement. And, you know, is the bond market, you know, being wrong here? I feel like you know, there's as you know, there's a large part of what the bond market is is mathematical, and you know, and the, you know, we have a, a a forward curve that's very liquid that's trading, and you know, and up until last week, at some point last week, you know, was calling for four percent Fed funds, uh, and so like it's hard to completely diverge the whole yield curve away from that, and so I think um, you know, there's been um, just an you know overshoot uh, on the side of the bond market because. You know, a, a number of reasons. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Fed was really a large buyer through the QE post-COVID. And when they kind of come off, you know, someone has to backfill that. And uh, well, but, but, but in fairness, yeah. but in fairness, but in fairness that point, right? Whenever the Fed did QE, yields actually fell. That's whenever right. The, right. Whenever the Fed did QT, the yields actually broke. Oh, right. It was the exact yeah. opposite of what one would yeah. expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, partly because you would want 
to believe that the Fed is only tightening because we're in a virtuous, sustainable economic cycle. And that's what we got on Jan 1. Everyone's like, look, you know, we're going to have 5.5% GDP. It's going to be a continuation of the pent-up demand because of the reopening, yada, 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 right? So like, and so there was a, a part of it, the bond market was set up for higher rates, uh, maybe not necessarily as visible in the beginning of the year. Uh, and so those that were underinvested or short, you know, you know, kudos to them. But you know, the the move went, you know, even beyond what even my expectations were uh, as well. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, you know, fine by saying that we went way further than we should be. And at this point, you know, we really can't afford uh, you know, both for the housing market, but even for some of the weaker credits, we can't afford, you know, going to four percent or higher. Even though people would say, well, that's what you need in order to kill inflation. I was like, well, not necessarily. I mean. You have, again, a very highly leveraged banking system and in a financial system, I should say, not, not, not banking, but just, you know, in general, uh, you know, there's people are very sensitive to, to the price of money and as well as the quantity of money. And now you have the Fed, you know, pushing up the price of money to levels that become uneconomic for a lot of actors. And they're also draining the liquidity, which helped uh, exacerbate the, the risk on move from 2020 lows. Like that double tightening, as I call it, I mean, that's that's just, you know, only really started. This is the third hike and the first month of QT. So let's talk again in December, January, and see how aggressive the Fed is at that point. They're probably dialed back already. I already have, I mean, I have them easing in next year because I think that they're going to have to ease. And so like, I'm always trying to think about what, like, what the next trade's going to be in the future. And uh, But you can't trade it today. Like you have to think about, like, let's see how far rates can go. Maybe they've already peaked. And then let's see if we do get that cathartic event that leads to a bigger risk off in the you know sometime in the next six months. And then eventually the Fed's gonna have to follow suit and ease because if they don't, then you know it's gonna be an even deeper kind of recession. We go from a little R recession to a big R. I think these kind of views are important for people to at least consider. Uh, because as much as there will be those that push back and say, what are you talking about? The decline's uh, uh, just getting started, inflation's just getting started. What's funny to me is that if we all agree that no, nobody can predict the future, whenever you hear somebody say that, that inherently is a prediction. And nobody knows what tomorrow brings, so you have to at least do scenario analysis around different paths to then you know, potentially allocate. Now, George, I saw you liked one of the tweets I put out. Amateurs look to the right of the equal sign, pros look to the left. And what I'm really alluding to there is process as opposed to outcome. Because the reality is in this business, as much as everybody likes to think they can control their returns, they can control their effort in due diligence, but nobody can really control their returns at any moment in time. That's just the reality. Anybody that that's right. otherwise is is a fool, okay, in my opinion. But I want you to talk about, from a bond strategist perspective, how do you think about being wrong and then communicating when you have to shift? Because you've got a lot of people that are tracking your work, and like everybody else, there are times you're going to be right, times that you're going to be wrong. And people seem to have a funny way of crucifying you if you're wrong in a small sample. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like I think to your point about like, look, that you need to figure out ways to offer alpha both in either insights or actual, you know, trading recommendations for those that are that are would be uh, uh, privy to get that sort of stuff, depending on like your business or what I do uh, institutionally. But I mean, like at the end of the day, like what you don't want to fall into the trap is beta because then. If, ever, if everyone's just beta, you're just trading the market. So you think you're smart. You're just basically riding the market up and down. And that's kind of what happened for a lot of folks that, you know, saw the sort of you know, big moves. Um, really, again, both the last 14 years, we've seen many episodes of this where, 
you know, it feels like it's, the trend's your friend until it's not, and it's literally just you're just riding the trend. You know, I think you know because you know I deploy very similar kind of approaches like scenario analysis. You know, break down like the pros and cons of what would make me change the view and being hyper, you know, focused on how the data is evolving, both macro as well as pricing dynamics in the markets, uh, and, and then meshing those two with what the sentiment is. You know, it, you know, gives me a, a framework to 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 understand that it, you know, am I in, like completely in the wrong zip code? And if I am, I'm going to have to come clean about it. Uh, and so, I mean, that's something that's a, it's an evolution. I think it, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, people sometimes do kind of you know dig in their 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 heels and don't want to admit when they're wrong. I think it's a healthy process. I think it's you know we're all wrong. I think that's something that uh, most investors will appreciate. Um, that you know it's, it's part of our we can't predict the future uh, dilemma, which is the way it works. But if you have enough conviction around various scenarios and an understanding what's priced in, uh, even if you're maybe eventually proven wrong, but at least if you can validate how you came across with that, then people will respect it. I I think that it's easy to to, kind of try to shy away from taking responsibility, but I think it's super important to always stress test your ideas and, and come, you know, and to be honest about it. There's two two things. One, I would recommend looking at the Liberty Street Fed, New York Fed. They did a you know great job explaining both QE and QT because they're not they're yes in theory they should be like mirror images of each other uh, in the way the directions move you know uh, but it depends on who the end user is. So if the end user is the banking system, some version of what you said is kind of right, but there are some things that I would clarify and I'll, and I'll get to that in a second. And then, and if you're not a you know, commercial bank, which has, you know, faces the Fed and has uh, an account at the Fed, then you know the the commercial banks will have to, uh, you know, basically, the, you know, the the those that were um, before when the Fed does QE and buys an asset from a non-bank, the banks actually do credit that investor's uh, deposit account with new cash because it has to balance out. So it really comes down to the bank versus the non-banks part of it. If the non-banks are the ones which I think most likely will be, I mean, the banks I think will buy, I think, you know, should be buying treasuries given how much rates have risen. Uh, but, you know, that you can all you know publicly see in the, in the public data with the lag. If, you know, if the banks are going to be buying treasuries, then some version of what you described kind of makes sense. But they would still have to, um, you know, grow their what is known as their perf- their, their securities uh, book. So their securities book and their portfolio would have to you know, grow as part of their treasury, uh, and that would probably most likely come in lieu of lending, or either because there's less lending in the economy, or whatever the case may be, uh, or we're heading into a recession. And they're and they're fine buying treasuries, and you know, and then for the non-bank um, entities. And then it becomes a harder situation because you know banks can print money. Commercial banks are the ones that do it, so they can expand their balance sheets to match up the deposit growth, whatever. But for the non-banks, that's much more of a zero-sum game. Like you're going to have to make a decision: Do I sell this corporate or this equity to buy these higher yielding treasuries because now they're finally been given a, a, a better lease on life because rates are higher, or I'm worried about the macro outlook like we discussed, you know, uh, in the last uh, 45 minutes. So I get like that, 
like if it's if it's the non-banks that are going to have to buy the treasuries and and the mortgages, then there's going to be a portfolio balancing in reverse. They're going to have to sell something to raise the cash, or they have the cash already, you know, waiting for it. The macro prudential stuff and the fiscal policy snafus. I, yes, I mean those are front and center, and those are material, and they, and they actually do impact the economy directly. And I, I don't agree with all of them, but I mean, I do. I, I, I do take your point. It's well taken that the Fed is not necessarily what led to the uh, sort of kind of what this lurking inflation risks that are out there. That, but. I mean, they their their job is to fight inflation. Number one, and number two, they did aid and abet by helping to finance some of that five trillion that came from the stimulus. So, you know, if the Fed literally had done what you know it should have done coming out of COVID, which is you know just dampen the shock a bit, make sure the markets were functioning well, and then gracefully exit the scene over the course of 2020, especially once we got the vaccines that rolled out, and you know, by 2021. That would have made it harder for further fiscal stimulus that was, you know, that was done under the Biden administration. Like, so if literally they had gracefully gotten out, then they would not be the buyers of last resort or the first resort in many ways of all these treasury debts that were financing a lot of these stimulus programs. So like that, there was that aspect, like they helped finance this. Uh, and two, you know, they should have seen inflation coming much sooner. And I think it's largely because they had the old playbook. They saw what happened in 2008. They thought it would take three years for inflation to actually kind of stabilize. And they misread the room around how much willingness there was from both sides of of the aisle, not just the Democrats, but to just kind of print money. And so I think that miscalculation is on their watch uh, and and they needed to react much sooner. I mean, I was pretty vocal about that all throughout 2021. They had to stop QE. It was too much. Uh, and then they pivot fast enough to tightening, but now they're pivoting even faster, which then means the, the risk of a of a mistake is happening on the other side. So historically speaking, on average, Fed hiking cycles since the 1980s have been about 200, 250 basis points. Like so, they you know each given cycle they raised that on average. In 2004, 2006, they were super glacial and they hiked. 425 basis points, 25 bips at a time. And it, it was like, you know, like what that was like watching paint dry for sure until it eventually broke the housing market. Like, so the Fed, you know, typically doesn't raise rates more than 300 basis points at one go. And so my contention has been that, you know, like we're now getting closer to that. If we do get to, you know, 75 uh, in July, as some are forecasting, as including ourselves. Then you're at 250 basis points of all-in roughly yield that the Fed has raised rates. Uh, you know, if they keep going further than that and they go towards what's priced into the market, which again everyone can, can see, you know, as you mentioned, 350 to roughly four percent is where we got to on the high side. Like that's a lot of Fed tightening in a very short time period. Now, is that like this argument that you need to get rates up to match the level of inflation? Then. You, you, you're you ignoring a couple of key components, again, of what makes our economy different this time than it was in the prior cycles, especially the 1970s, which is the, the leverage part. You know, we're, we're three times leverage versus what we were back in the 70s and a much more financially engineered economy than back then. So these these 
rises, you know, really are meaningful. And then the QT part, you know, they're, again, they're targeting the price of money and the quantity of money. The QT in reverse, you know, some papers have written that it's worth like, you know, every $250 billion in reverse or $300 billion is worth like 25 basis points or more in, in, in higher rates. So if the Fed keeps QT in place and raises rates as much as that, you know, it's priced into the market, that's like my argument of the double tightening, and they don't have to match the level of inflation to actually get it down. And what actually has to happen more likely is you need a recession. And what people fail to real, say on the back side of that those comments, like, well, if the Fed only raised rates to 8%, that will fix the inflation problem. Then you're definitely going to have a big recession on the other side of it, because what really kills inflation is the recession. It's less so the Fed policy, it's the Fed triggering something that causes a really sharp slowdown. So if you want to kill inflation, you're going to have a really big recession at some point. The RRP is a very um, restrictive policy in terms of, yes, it locks up uh, the ability of that liquidity to go elsewhere. So that, yeah, that is a form of tightening already. So the question then becomes like, you know, when they start to shrink the balance sheet, does it end up, you know, reducing the reverse repo program versus draining liquidity from the banking system or some combination thereof? Again, like, you know, as we've, it's June 20th, we're, we're early days in QT. We'll see um, how that works. I mean, I put up a, a chart both on, on LinkedIn as well as Twitter, which you guys can go look back and see that uh, whenever we have a significant drawdown in risk assets, like we saw in 2000, 2002, and also 2007, 2009, if you look at that chart, there's, and then I compare it against money market balances. You know, back then, you, know, you would see a, you know, a commensurate rise in short-term you know, preference for, for cash, basically. So money would go into money funds. And right now, we see the, R, the reverse repo program seeing you know, a pretty big increase as the Fed is raising rates. But if we were to see you know, this risk-off you know, persist or even get worse from here, and then you could see a scenario where even more money gets stuck at the RRP, which then would drain liquidity from the banking system. And that, you know, that, that causes a whole host of other issues. And so like, this is never meant to be easy. This is what happens when you're too, you know, too big of a balance sheet. It's not easy to unwind. Different now, again, versus the last 40 years, inflation is, at least for now, a binding constraint. And you know, we started the discussion around that we think inflation eventually does roll over, but we don't know, right? So I mean, until that happens, we don't know what that right level is. And when does the Fed you know, blink? Those are all things that you know, the, you know, the multi-trillion dollar questions. And, and like, but what, as long as that lasts, then the Fed's responsibility towards, you know, to, the, to the, the American household, the American consumer is front and center. And I think then that just means that, you know, the, the shortage for dollars overseas and, and that becomes more of an afterthought. Uh, and like, and quite frankly, the Fed never really had, you know, specific tools. They have, you know, these, you know, cross-currency swap lines, when there is a crisis, if there ever was the need for that to happen again, they'll you know they'll they'll use that most likely. So I think like the they're not going to take into consideration the global demand for dollars, and I think that you know the inflation's a binding constraint. They're going to have to just really nip it in the bud. The bank channel, I'm not so concerned about. I mean, but there, I mean, there, like if if there were to see you know bigger losses because of some sort of bigger move in credit, you know, no. no 
no one place is immune, but I do think the banks are uh, definitely in a good position. I know that people say that a lot, but I think, you know, both from capital as well as best practices, uh, that that's definitely true. So this is more about the non-bank entities and, and their ability to continue to offer credit or, or weather losses, uh, both on the, you know, the, the investor side as well as the issuer side. Uh, of how this all pans out, and so this is you know this is why I do think the raise the rise in rates do matter, uh, and and does, so does QT. And to your first part of the question about or the comment on fiscal versus you know uh, versus monetary policy, you know the two kind of do go hand in hand, and at times should be breaks for one another. But you know if if you know if there's more fiscal response at this point, the Fed would have to go even more aggressive. We saw kind of a, a version of that when the Fed was raising rates and, and the Trump tax cuts were put in place, which was a fiscal policy measure as well. So it works in both directions, either through uh, you know, spending money or, or giving tax cuts. Again, that's more philosophical discussion, which we can go on for, for hours. But the Fed would have to lean, lean even harder. So that's kind of counterproductive. At this point, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you know, many people probably look at Joe Manchin and what he did uh, as at least uh, preventing a higher inflation move. And uh, at this point, the Fed's going to have to see if inflation either falls on its own or through its more aggressive actions. Um, and a combination of the economies already decelerating will allow them to you know, get us to a better place in 23, 24. And then we also have the midterms coming up too. So there's a lot of things going on, going on which will you know, impact uh, the ability to spend the next two years. And I think that just means you know, the economy is, you know, is set for a decline here. Uh, but I don't think it's cataclysmic like 2008. I don't by any means think that. But, you know, there's going to be definitely uh, an adjustment process. I think we're, like I said, in the middle of it. And again, everybody that's here, make sure you follow George and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.